Well, how do I keep my dream alive when it's not paying the bills? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. We're going to do something a little different today. Rather than going through a lot of questions, we're going to focus on a particular theme. This is especially for artists, musicians, writers, sculptors, comedians, performers. Those of you who have artistic, creative skills and you're struggling with, how do you really allow that to be your primary focus? How do you keep nurturing that if you've got a mortgage, a car payment, insurance? Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some specific issues related to those kind of questions. Here's some of the questions. Dan, I've condemned my son to a slow and painful death. Now, this is from a letter from a dad. Very painful letter that I'm going to share with you. I mentioned it last week. I've communicated with a dad. He knows I'm going to be talking about this. And I'm going to be using that just simply as an example because it addresses concerns that so many of you have. You may be the parent with a child who you know has creative skills and you're struggling with, well, how do you really encourage them in that arena when they may not be able to make a living? You may be the person who has the creative skills and you're struggling with that. So other issues we're going to be looking at, should I pursue my dream or just give up and get a job? I'm going to be asking you, are you listening for your music? How can you afford to follow your dream? Then I'm going to give you a five-step process for change. Now, here's a quotation for today. It's easy to come up with one. There's lots of them out there that address this, but I pulled one from Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. Our business partner today is FreshBooks. I want to give them a shout out. We're grateful for their ongoing participation in the podcast. And then we'll go right back in. Now, this relates because just today, again, my bookkeeper was here and we're looking at the books, the figures for last year for 2018. Golly, I'm thrilled that I can so easily look at where does my income come from as an author? Where does my income come? Where's it, where's it coming from most? What should I be looking for? All right. As an author, I mean, we know that 95% of authors never make more than $40,000 a year. I mean, that would be pretty discouraging to me and certainly to most of you, I would assume. Well, in looking at my income for last year as an author, I mean, I'm known primarily as an author, New York Times bestseller, you know, the routine, you know, so that sounds wonderful. Last year, when I consider all the royalties that I got on my multiple books, and I have books with Random House, Broadman Holman, Morgan James, Thomas Nelson, I mean, great publishers, great relationships with publishers, love what I've been able to do with my books. When I look at all the royalties that I received on my books in 2018, it comprises a little less than 2% of my income. Now, I'm going to address that. What are the other things that I'm doing 
That's the gist of today's episode. But I'm able to look at that and identify that and then look at what do I need to do in other areas because I have my books in a row. So using fresh books, you can do the same. You can know exactly where your income is coming from. You can shoot out those invoices when you need to. You can link your credit and debit cards to that. So the next time you have a business lunch, you just take a quick shot and it'll automatically put it right in place for you. I mean, that's what I want you to do so you can stay on top of that. So we're going to talk about artistic skills, but a primary part of this is you need to see your art as a business. If it's just a hobby, then don't expect it to pay the bills for you. But if you really want it to be the source of income to bless you and your family and others, those around you, then make sure that you're looking at this whole thing as a business. So check it out. You know the routine. You can get an unrestricted 30-day free trial. No obligation at all. Just go to freshbooks.com slash 48 days and enter 48 days in the how did you hear about us section. Now I've got a resource for you as well. And I'll mention this again at the end, but I've got 10 quotations put together to keep you motivated toward your dream. 10 quotations, just go to 48days.com slash motivate and you can find those quotations. So here's the note I got from a daddy. The subject line was condemned my son to a steady job. Dear Dan, last night I condemned my son to a slow and painful death. Dan, I've been listening to you since you began your podcast show. I've read most of your books. I believe most of what you say. However, I've not acted on most of what you teach. I'm currently on the tail end of my 20-year sentence of a government career, a career of lackluster events and accomplishments, a career topped out 14 years ago, a career that the less experienced and less qualified have leapfrogged over me for leadership positions because I don't have a college degree framed on the wall. A career that has broken me to strive for mediocrity and accept 43% as high achievement. My oldest son, age 17, has a dream to be a writer. He wants to write novels and adventure tales. He actually has his first book up on Amazon as of just December. And he's over 50,000 words into his first novel. He's been developing these stories since he was five or six years old. While other kids want to play video games or surf the internet, he's writing, drawing maps of the worlds he creates and developing new languages. So how did I condemn him to a slow death? His mother and I have debated this over and over. She wants him, and I agree, to be able to pay his bills, to have a steady job, to have something to fall back on. I'm ripped in half. As a parent, I want to make sure that he has a roof over his head and food to eat. Honestly, he doesn't care about that at all. He could live in a shack on white bread and peanut butter and be perfectly content. As a Dan Miller listener, I want him to follow his passion, even if it means struggling through lean years to accomplish his success. So if you were in our shoes as his mother and dad, what would you do? I don't want him to be stuck in a cubicle whack-a-mole office or a 10 by 10 cell of a government job doing time like I am, wishing I was doing something else, but knowing I can't until my release for good behavior comes with jubilee and tears of joy. Dan, if I condemn my son, I'll have to stop listening to you because inside me, I'll know that I'm a hypocrite. Wow. Well, I've communicated with this dad, thanked him for his transparency for his vulnerability and sharing, because I knew that his story would touch a lot of you. Feeling, again, you may be the mom or dad, or you may be the child. 
You may be a grown child and still hearing those voices from your mom and dad that you can't do that. You can't be an interior designer. You'll never make a living doing that. Be a nurse. You'll never be without a job. Well, that happens a lot. So I wrote back to the dad. I said, oh my, how I feel both your love and your pain in this note. And yes, that's a realistic tension between wanting to support your son's dreams and wanting him to pay the bills. I talk often about the three-legged stool being that blend of passion, talent, and money. If any of the three are missing, the stool will fall over. So if passion and talent are not creating money, then the work is just a hobby and something must be added to complete the picture. But it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. So I I included a couple snippets about well-known writers. T.S. Eliot. I mean, you probably recognize that name. He was a British essayist, publisher, playwright, literary and social critic, one of the 20th century's major poets. He won both the Nobel Prize in Literature and the Order of Merit in 1948. As a young, ambitious writer in his 20s, he wrote reviews and essays, delivered a lecture series. That was a pretty devouring workload that left him not a whole lot of time for his real passion of writing poetry. And he barely generated enough money for a meager existence. So at age 29, he got a real job. He took a job at Lloyd's Bank in London, where he worked for the next eight years. Two days after he started there, he wrote to his mother, I'm now earning two pounds, 10 shillings a week for sitting in an office from 9.15 to 5 with an hour for lunch, tea served in this office. I mean, he was delighted. The pressure to pay the rent and buy groceries was gone. He used his lunch hour to discuss literary projects with his friends. And then in the evening, he had leisure time to work in his poetry and his fame began to grow. Did he then leave for the freedom of being an entrepreneur with no restraints on his time? No. After eight years at Lloyd's Bank, he then accepted an editorial position at the publishing firm Faber and Geyer, where he stayed for the rest of his entire career. Now, Anthony Trollope is another one. He demanded of himself that he write 3,000 words every morning. That was before going off to his job at the Postal Service, a position he kept for 33 years during the writing of more than two dozen books. Now, we tend to see creative skills as all or nothing. I mean, burn the bridges, make it work. But sometimes forcing your art to be the only source of income kills the very creativity we wish to increase. Maybe your son shouldn't burden his writing or you, your art or music or sculpting or whatever, inventing, designing. Maybe he shouldn't burden that with the responsibility of paying for his life. Now, I love writing. But I survive financially by taking the central message of my writing, and then we offer courses, live live events, online communities, masterminds for those with similar interest. I mean, that's how I generate income. I want to read a piece. This is from Big Magic. Now, this is one of the resources I'm going to recommend to all of those who, all of you who are listening, who have a creative skill. And you're trying to figure out how to make that the only thing that you do. So Elizabeth Gilbert wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Phenomenal success. She had a job. She had a job long after that book was successful. Here's what she writes. 
I held on to those other sources of income for so long because I never wanted to burden my writing with the responsibility of paying for my life. I knew better than to ask this of my writing because over the years, I have watched so many other people murder their creativity by demanding that their art pay the bills. I've seen artists drive themselves broke and crazy because of this insistence that they are not legitimate creators unless they can exclusively live off their creativity. And when their creativity fails them, meaning it doesn't pay their rent, they descend into resentment, anxiety, or even bankruptcy. Worst of all, they often quit creating it all. Now, along with that, following our calling remains. Now, here's a piece from The War of Art, which is the second book I recommend by Stephen Pressfield. Now, be careful. This is not The Art of War. That's another book. This is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. In there, right at the very end page, a section Joanne and I have shared with many, many people is this. We come into this world with a specific personal destiny. We have a job to do, a calling to enact, a self to become. Our job in this lifetime is not to shape ourselves into some idea we imagine we ought to be, but to find out who we really are and become it. If you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself. You hurt your children. You hurt me. You hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to God. Creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. End of quotation. Now, to this dad, at 17 years old, your son can enjoy the experiment of writing. I mean, encourage his creativity and passion. Maybe he will be the next John Grisham or Stephen King or Maya Angelou. And in a couple years, he can't pay the bills. You can help him explore multiple ways to keep a roof over his head and continue to nurture and develop the writing that he loves. And my own grandson, 23 years old, just moved in with us here, moved here from Colorado to here in Franklin, Tennessee, because he wants to write Christian music. He plays a little guitar, plays a little keyboard. He writes songs, has a whole bunch of them in his catalog. That's what he wants to do. We want to encourage him. Now, do we think that he's going to be able to, in three months here, pay the rent pay his insurance, put gas in the car, buy groceries? Eh, probably not. So you know what we did the very first week? Took him around a couple of places. He got a job waiting tables, waiting tables. He gets an hourly base and then he gets tips. So now he's got that in place. Now he can go into work. I mean, one of the shifts that he's after, we'll take him in like at three o'clock in the afternoon and he'll work till like 10 at night. Guess what? That means he's got all day, essentially, to work in his music, to connect with other people. He's doing that already as well, but not going to allow him to put the pressure on that as being the only source of income. A couple years ago, on a Sunday afternoon, Joanne and I were driving along, as we often do, just exploring areas, and we drove past one of the most prestigious private schools here in the Nashville area. 
there was a big, I mean, 10, 15 foot banner in the front yard, proudly announcing on the banner, a hundred percent college admission for our seniors again. I mean, I wanted to pull off the side of the road and cry. Now, I know that any high school principal who doesn't claim that that's his or her goal is likely to be accused of not having the student's best interest at heart and would also likely be run out of town by indignant parents. But personally, I mean, think about that. I think there's a major elitism at play here. And ultimately, a lot of those students are going to suffer as a result. Is our goal really to prepare every student for a white-collar position, a position where they're going to sit at a desk in front of a computer? I mean, in looking at my own grandchildren, I'd see those for whom I'd, I'd weep at such a prospect. That elitism is in believing that every occupation pursued by a path outside of college is somehow lower and not a worthy pursuit for our students. When we become a culture that looks down on labor and craftsman positions, so really, in this graduating class, we're not going to have any Ferrari mechanics, no sculptors, no HVAC specialists, no one I can contact to design another water feature for our property, no skilled carpenters, no stonemasons, no welders, no piano tuners. Golly, I mean, we've already had somebody come out and do our spring checkup on our air conditioning system just to check up no parts required he was here less than two hours my bill was 149 dollars no parts at all just labor now here's another example i've got a little john deere tractor recently i needed to have new bearings put in the front wheels the bill on that was 2690 dollars and 78 cents now most of that was labor billed at 70 dollars an hour now, at the same time, I've got a young friend who's an attorney who's working part-time at FedEx, Kinko's, what used to be Kinko's, 12 bucks an hour to supplement his income. So here we've got the HVAC guy and the tractor mechanic, $70 an hour. The attorney, 12 bucks an hour. Now, in 1942, Joseph Schumpter wrote that the expansion of higher education beyond what our labor market demands creates for white collar workers employment in substandard work at wages below those of the better paid manual workers. And then he added, it may create unemployability of a particularly disconcerting type. The man who has gone to college or university easily becomes psychically unemployable in manual occupations without necessarily acquiring employability in professional work. Now that was written, my goodness, what is that? 76, uh, 77 years, uh, 77 years ago. I mean, how much truer is that today? I mean, isn't that a strong term psychically unemployable? I mean, I'm sure, you know, people who are stuck in $12 an hour jobs who would never lower themselves to work in something like, um, you know, installing electric lines or being a tractor mechanic. I mean, that would be beneath them, even if they could quadruple their income. No, they aren't going to lower themselves to that. They're psychically unemployable because they envision themselves being high earners, even if that is not the reality. I mean, if we consider our children to be smart and really want the best for them, shouldn't we consider a broad range of occupational possibilities? Now, I'll have to admit, you know, my vantage point is this, I've made a pretty good living working with people who at 45 years old 
recognize they're living somebody else's dream. As we unpack that incongruity and begin to work toward a more authentic life, there's all kinds of things that come to the surface as meaningful work possibilities. God, I have had the pleasure of helping pastors become artists. I mean, dentists become forest rangers. Doctors become organic gardeners. Now, we know having the ability to go to college is not enough reason for doing so. There has to be an alignment with a person's values, dreams, and passions. I mean, I've worked with countless professionals, engineers, physicians, dentists, accountants, pastors, who have proven their academic ability to create a life they detest. I mean, most of the college jobs that students are being trained for now can easily be outsourced to China or Taiwan. But if I want my roof repaired, my drains unclogged, my lawn mowed, or I want another beautiful sculpture of a tree standing in my property, I can't have someone in China provide that service. People with those skills are immune from outsourcing. Or someone said you can't hammer a nail over the internet. I mean, people with those real skills are pretty immune from all the outsourcing that's taken place. I'd like to see us stop depriving our children of the best options. I'd like to see that sign in front of that prestigious high school here say, hey, 60% are going to college, 10% trade school, 10% continuing family business, 10% entrepreneurs, and 10% are going to do world travel to further clarify their career path. I mean, that would make me want to send my child there. I mean, what about degrees for a pro, for a creative profession. Here's another short segment from Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. My fear is that many people pay through the nose for advanced schooling in the arts without realizing that they're actually gambling because on the surface, it can look like they're making a sound investment in their future. After all, isn't school where people go to learn a profession and isn't a profession, a responsible and respectable thing to acquire. But the arts are not a profession in the manner of regular professions. There's no job security and creativity and there never will be going into massive debt in order to become a creator then can make a stress and burden out of something that should only ever have been a joy and a release. And after having invested so much in their education, artists who don't immediately find professional success can feel like failures. Their sense of having failed can interfere with their creative self-confidence and maybe even stop them from creating at all. Then they're in the terrible position of having to deal not only with a sense of shame and failure, but also with steep monthly bills that will forever remind them of their shame and failure. Nobody needs debt less than an artist. End of that quotation. Well, should you pursue your dream, or just give up and get a job. Here's a note from a young gal. Hi, Dan. Am I being too idealistic or too practical? I went back to school two years ago and just finished an associate's in art. I'm good, but it takes time to become great. In the meantime, I need to move out and support myself. My previous industry was insurance related. Out of the blue, I received an invitation from an old contact to interview for a job in that industry. I nailed the interview. Of course, I may or may not get the job. What if I do? 
I've been volunteering at museums and galleries, but this is a paid gig. I wanted to keep taking night classes in art. If I get this job, I won't have time to continue volunteering or take those classes. Should I turn it down and hold out for what I want or forget the classes and start making money again? I encourage this young lady to take the job. I mean, no one does their best art when they're desperate. I described uh, working with a Christian musician years ago. She was living with friends, driving an old rattle-trap car that kept breaking down. She'd beg for opportunities to sing at tiny little churches on Sunday night, hoping and praying they'd give her enough of a love offering so she could buy groceries on Monday. Well, I suggested that this young lady use her administrative skills to get a real job. She listened. She got a job, actually, at Fruit of the Loom, got her own apartment, bought a really nice car. Guess what happened? All of a sudden, her invitations to sing increased and her love offerings more than doubled what they'd ever been. The peace of mind she was experiencing replaced the transparent desperation. People wanted to be around her as she sang from a heart full of joy. Well, you know that I look for those and solutions, not either or. Here's a response I got about a week later from this young gal whose letter I just read. Dan, thank you so much for answering my question today. I'm the artist who asked about being too idealistic or too realistic. In any case, I got the job and just finished my first week. Now, this is an insurance job and she's an artist. I'm very happy. My dedication to my art has taken on a greater intensity because the amount of free time I have each day is limited. I feel free to make the kind of art I really care about instead of wondering what will sell. I'm no longer desperate and I'm looking forward to moving out on my own and having a car again. I feel blessed to have an interesting job and a career as an artist and money. Thanks for everything that you do. Fridays are the highlight of the week for me, not because of the weekend, but because of 48 days. Well, this model of stair-stepping your way to success makes a lot of sense. I mean, pursuing your dream doesn't justify putting yourself in a position of desperation or or in being dependent on others while that dream comes into view. Getting a job may be the most responsible thing you do and the quickest way to make your dream come true. Look for those and solutions and accelerate your success in all areas. Now, here are the ways that if you're an artist, and that includes, again, any kind of art, we're talking about a creative skill. Here are four ways you can make this work. This is pretty interesting. This comes from my friend Jeff Goins' book, Real Artists Don't Starve. Now, we bought cases of these. We gave these to every one of our coaches in our coaching mastery program. Real artists don't starve because the principles are so valid for anything you're doing, creative or entrepreneurial. But he says, here are the ways that you can get paid for your art. First is the path of the commercial artist in which you sell your art directly to the market. Um, so that's, you know, what? so you, you do something and get paid for it. You do sculpting, you have go to the market on the weekends, the flea market, whatever, and people pay you for that. Or you do art or you write and you put things up on eBay or on Amazon and you're selling enough to actually create income. So certainly there's a legitimate expectation of doing art and getting paid directly for that. Second is a traditional patronage model where a wealthy benefactor is willing to pay for your livelihood as you do your work. 
Now, when you think about Michelangelo or Rembrandt, I mean, those guys didn't just sell their art. They had benefactors. They had somebody who thought the work that they did has value. And so they paid them. I mean, if you see the girl with the pearl earring, you'll see how that model works. That's the movie, The Girl with the Pearl Earring. But they had benefactors back in those days. That's not very common anymore. Certainly a possibility, but not very common. Third is the path of self-patronage in which you find a way to support the work yourself. Um, And the most common way to do this is to get a job. I mean, for most artists, second job is going to be something like waiting tables. It It may actually be teaching what you do. You could teach writing, you could teach art, you could teach sculpting. That may be a way to kind of create a job where it's not really just doing your art, but at least, you know, you get paid for it. And certainly that's one of the ways that I have, you know, done well as an author is by teaching other people how to leverage their writing. I mean, I have a package right now that we just started promoting them, thrilled about. Um, if you go to, well, if you go to 48 days.com slash experience, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, but where I teach other people how to leverage what they're doing. So instead of just writing another book, I can teach other people how to do that and working with them, you know, generate more income than most authors are ever going to do. Well, of course, there's a, a fourth way that Jeff proposes here in real artists don't starve. And that is to, um, the artist chooses poverty and creates a place of struggle and strife. I mean, starving artists, we hear that a lot, where they don't make enough money to get by, to pay their bills. And so they do, you know, live in, I mean, we here in Nashville, I mean, we've got thousands of people here who are very talented musicians. No question about it. They're talented, talented musicians. And they're sleeping in cardboard boxes and their bridges because they've never figured out how to turn that into real money, but they still choose that life. They'd rather be absolutely broke, homeless, and be able to just play their music than to lower themselves to get a real job. Well, those are the choices, four ways there, again, from Real Artists Don't Starve. Well, I've got a note here. Are you listening for your music? Now, a couple nights ago, again, we got a grandson here who wants to be in music, and we pulled out the old movie August Rush, Now, this is one of my absolutely favorite movies. I love this movie. I could watch this movie every week. And I don't do that. I'm not a movie guy, not a movie buff. This is one that just inspires me. It thrills me. August Rush. Now, it was released back in 2007. In this movie, the lead character has been sent to an orphanage at birth, but he always believed he had a mom and dad out there somewhere. He believed that somehow music was going to connect them. And thus, he heard music everywhere he went. I mean, he heard music and the trucks rolling by as a subway clanked along underneath and in the amazing compositions he created on the guitar. There's a scene where the wizard, who was played by Robin Williams, um, and this little boy, who's the lead character, who's now the, he's, he's the kid who now plays the good doctor, which is really interesting to see him in that role. But he's wonderful in this movie, August Rush. So the wizard and this little boy were talking about hearing the music, August asked the wizard if everyone could hear the music to which the wizard replied only those who are listening i love that line you don't hear the music unless you're listening well i see so many people who wake up to a skill or passion in midlife and beyond and then wonder why they hadn't recognized it earlier i mean artists who discover their hidden talent musicians who sit down on a piano and just begin to play coaches who recognize their natural ability for calling people to greatness 
Here's some steps that you could use to help you hear your music. Number one, start with 15 minutes of silence in the morning. Don't turn on the TV or check your email. Just listen to the silence. And I love the first, of course, one of my books is The Rudder of the Day, where I talk about how critical that first hour is. It sets the tone for everything that's going to happen the rest of the day. So I protect that first hour of the day very, very carefully. But do that. Listen. Don't just grab your phone, turn on the TV. My goodness, you're going to destroy the prospects of a good day. Number two, clear extraneous input during the day. I mean, what if you eliminated TV, radio, emails, tweets, and other people for a period of time? What could you hear without all the competition? Cal Newport, who wrote the book Deep Work, which had a profound impact on me, has a brand new book out called Digital Minimalism. And he addresses this, the time wasted looking at our screens, the time you could do other productive things if you're not doing that. So certainly there's that. So number one, start with 15 minutes of silence in the morning. Number two, clear out some of the input during the day. Number three, adjust what I call your reticular activator system for new ideas and insights. Now that reticular activator is a process of filtering out information you don't need and focusing in on what's important. I mean, here's an example. Let's say that I buy Joanna red Volvo sedan. The next day I see six red Volvo sedans right here in Franklin, Tennessee. And I wonder, my goodness, did everybody go to a Daryl Walter Volvo and buy a similar car yesterday? No, they were there all along. I just didn't have them at the front of my awareness. Or if you're standing on a busy street with the noise of traffic and a thousand voices, and then someone calls your name, you instantly hear that above all the other noise. If you're attuned to anticipating your music, you're much more likely to hear it. So expect great ideas. Expect to see things that are going to help your art flourish. Well, then the question is, you know, can you hear even God's voice over the cacophony of your daily life? Sometimes we allow so many things to come in so overwhelmed with just the details. We don't have any time. I mean, we can't hear that subtle, soft voice that's calling to us. Well, golly, just a quick insert here. Just to remind you, you can shoot in your questions, your responses to this, if you'd like, your struggles with being an artist and what you've done to overcome that. Just go to, or just shoot an email rather, to askdan at 48days.com. That's the easiest way to get a message to me. You can leave an audio message if you want. Last week I played that painful audio message from a little gal, but about her life feeling like she had no chance, but you can, uh, easiest way is just shoot me an email at askdan at 48days.com. Well, here's a sticky kind of question. Is talent really important or is it just important to obey God? Now that's obviously a mixed kind of question, but a lot of people get stuck in that thicky, sticky theological question. Here's a note from a listener. Dan, I love to share my faith with others, and I seem to have many natural talents, skills, and abilities suited for being a minister. However, I believe that no matter how suited someone may be for ministry, they must be called of God in order to be a minister. Talent is nothing to God. He rather wants a fully surrendered and obedient individual. I suppose my question is, how do I know whether I'm called to be a minister or just an entrepreneur with an idea I'm passionate about? John. How does God call us 
except through giving us skills and abilities, personality traits and passion that draw us to a particular direction. To think that God will ask a fully surrendered and obedient individual to something where there's no alignment with natural talents opens the door to heartache and misery. I mean, let's just play out John's thinking here a little bit. How would you like to attend a church where the pastor has no talent, skill, or passion for that position, but he was just willing and obedient? I mean, how long would you attend that church? I mean, apply this thinking to any work. Would you want a doctor who had no skill, but thought he was called to the medical profession? How about a teacher who had a passion for being an artist, but was convinced through well-meaning family that she was called to be a teacher? I've met with too many pastors, missionaries, and teachers who were obedient and willing, but whose natural skills did not line up with what their attempts were to do something godly. Many confused calling with the family tradition or the expectation of others, and their work was frustrating, spiritually depleting, ultimately led to a crisis that required change. I mean, I grew up as a son of a pastor who showed little joy in his work. My deepest fear was that God would call me as well to be a pastor or missionary to Africa, something I absolutely dreaded to even consider. But as I matured in my understanding, I realized God would not push me to be something where there was no fit with who he had created me to be. So the fact that you have many natural talents, as this writer said, skills and abilities suited for being a minister is a big part of recognizing that may in fact be God's call for you. And the fact that you see yourself as an entrepreneur makes it even more of a fit. What God wants you to do is never going to be in an area where you don't have many natural talents, skills, and abilities. But when there's an alignment of our skills, abilities, talents, personality traits, passions, we'll recognize God's call. We will experience work that's fulfilling, meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Or you can forget your talent. Just do what God wants you to do and be miserable in doing so. Well, a couple of years ago, Joanne and I, um, we had a, a radio show and we went to the company Christmas Luncheon, the radio station Christmas Luncheon. And at that show, we were treated to lunch and lots of other goodies. One of the goodies was the privilege of having a caricature drawn of us by Tracy Latham. Tracy shared that he had read 48 Days to the Work You Love a few years earlier. It inspired him to go into business full-time, and that business is drawing these incredible caricatures. Now, people told him that wasn't realistic, it wasn't practical, but he moved ahead anyway. Now, he stays booked at corporate events, birthday parties, conventions, conferences. Uh, He charges $120 an hour. He stays booked months and months in advance. I, I went to his site as I was just reviewing my notes for this, and I mean, this was a couple of years ago. He is even more booked. Now he has a $400 minimum. So he, he's not going to show up and just do an hour at 120. It's $400 minimum just to show up. So he'll go out somewhere, you know, for a morning or an afternoon or from, golly, what would that be? Four hours. He shows up at six o'clock at night to 10 o'clock or whatever and does his 400 $400? Yeah, not too bad. You can check him out. Go to NashvilleCaricatures.com and you'll see his site there. I had fun talking to Tracy. I asked him about, you know, did you go to school for this? You're just naturally talented. And he said the only reason he went to school was to delay adulthood. <laughs> he said he's naturally lazy. Uh, 
I ask him if there's any other kinds of art because caricatures is a particular kind. And does he do, you know, art? He says, only as time permits. My mother is still waiting for that oil painting of ducks in a lake. Well, I love to see people like that who have found something unique, something that really taps into their talent and passion. And they've created an economic model. So there we've got the three legs of the stool, passion, talent, and money. Well, let me go a couple more here. I can't afford to follow my dream. Now, this is from a reader who says, Dan, on a recent podcast, you said, choose the life you want first. Find the community where you'd like to live. As important as I think work is, I still see it as simply one tool for a successful life. Map out the ideal life, then find or create work that embraces that life. Now, he was quoting me there. So he says, my question is this. At 42 years old with a $40,000 a year salary, $20,000 in consumer debt, no retirement money saved whatsoever, and getting older every day, how can I afford to choose the life that I love? How will I ever get ahead? Okay, now you got the picture. He's locked in a low-paying job. How could he possibly pursue his dream? My question back is how can you afford to not choose the life that you love? I have to believe that finding your ideal life releases more freedom and more money. Staying in something unfulfilling stifles your best resources. Being in a job you don't love is obviously not using your best talents and passions. I mean, we often assume that if we did what we loved, our income would be less. Why do we think that? Would I make more money as a college professor because I could be in a tenured position and it's a responsible thing to do? Or as an author with no guaranteed salary of any kind? But it's what I love doing. Well, I know the answer for that for myself. I mean, every day that you spend knowing you're off track is a day squandered, a day that could have been better spent living in a better way. I mean, working in something that is less than what you love is like driving a car with dirt in a gas tank and a block of wood under the accelerator. Kent Julian, you've heard me talk about Kent. He was a youth pastor, respected, paid well, but he knew he had more to offer. Today, his speaking and training business provides a much bigger impact and income several times what he was previously making. He couldn't afford to not follow his dream. Kamanzi Constable says he was living a life he could best describe as existing. He says he wanted more, but he was listening to the fears and negative voices of other people. He was overweight, bored, and over $100,000 in debt. In the summer of 2011, he clarified his dream. He read 48 Days to the Work You Love, clarified his dream, quit his day job, lost 160 pounds, and moved his family from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Maui, Hawaii. Not following his dream was killing him. We've got lots of and lots of those stories in the 48 Days Eagles community. I mean, you don't have to burn any bridges to do the dreaming and planning. Get clear on what the ideal action would be. Then all you have to do is create a plan of action, complete with a timeline. Sometimes we talk about paying a price for success. Personally, I think we pay a much higher price for mediocrity in our lives. Now, there's a, a movie, an old movie called Collateral. Taxi driver played by Jamie Foxx tells Tom Cruise's character, I'm not in this for the long haul. This is just filling in. I'm putting some things together. I'm going to open my own limo service. So Tom Cruise asks him, how long have you been doing this? And Jamie Foxx replies, 12 years. Now, this is a classic example of how life happens. I mean, I saw a guy once who had taken a temporary job at a bank. He knew it wasn't something he wanted to do, but it was just a fill-in while he did his real job search. That was 14 years years ago. Life just happened. He got used to where he was. Didn't have to take enough initiative 
to move up to some, a higher level of success. I mean, I talk to people nearly every day who are writing a book. When I congratulate them and ask how long they've been working on it, it's not unusual to hear, ah, seven years. Well, my advice is throw it out. Start with something new. Map out the chapters. Put yourself on a schedule to complete it in 180 days. I once talked to a guy who said he had been at the same job. I remember the job clearly for 24 years, and he hated it. When I asked how long he had hated his job, he said 23 years and 11 months. I mean, you're kidding me? Why is he still there? What compromises has he made in his health, emotional well-being, personal development, relationships, to do something that's draining that much? Here's a five-step process for change. Number one, clarify your current situation. Just identify clearly where you are. Number two, seek the advice and opinion of other people. Number three, identify the alternatives. Number four, I mean, do a little bit more research. Choose the best alternative. Number five, act. That's all you have to do. You can make any kind of business decision in that. And you can bring your dream to life by doing that. Don't wait on perfect conditions for success to happen. Just go ahead and do something. Now, I mentioned I love writing. Again, we know that most authors don't make a lot. I've leveraged my writing. I leverage the art that I love doing by doing some practical things that do generate income. I want you to, I want to encourage you to follow your dream with all your passion and purpose, but create a plan to make your life work as well. Now I want to end with a short passage from Steve Jobs that he shared at a commencement, college commencement in June of 2005 to the graduating class at Stanford University. It was only 15 minutes long. I'm just going to read you a short paragraph. Now we know that Steve Jobs was one. He went to college, dropped out after a semester because of the financial strain it was putting on his parents. Went to India, studied Eastern religions, bounced around for a little bit, and then you know the rest of the story. Here's what Steve Jobs says. You've got to find work you love, and that is as true for your work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to do work that you love. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking until you find it. Don't settle. Your time is limited. So don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. End of Steve Jobs' quote. Well, that's what I want you to do. They have given you some resources, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, Real Artists Don't Starve, Jeff Goins, Big Magic, Elizabeth Gilbert. Of course, we've got a lot of other resources for you as well. We've got those 10 quotations to keep you motivated toward your dream. Just go to 48days.com slash motivate. Hey, thanks for being part of this amazing community. I love hearing these stories, the stories of struggle and the stories of success. Keep those coming in. We know that 
Together, we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. You don't have to settle for less. Keep your dream alive.